Hey, good morning, everybody. It is wonderful to see you all. My name is Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here at Portico Church, Arlington, and I just want to welcome all of you here, whether you're new or visiting from out of town or looking for a new church home. We want you to feel welcome um, because we are all welcomed here, not by virtue of who we are or what we've done, but by virtue of the Son of God who has given his life for us. And so that is a warm welcome. And so our hope as a church is that we embody that welcome and that we help people understand that that is why they're able to be here. And that is for all of us. We are in the book of Galatians, and um, we're actually entering into a new section of the book. So we're starting in chapter 3 today. We're going to be looking at chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. And the first two chapters of Galatians are kind of Paul's defense of his ministry as an apostle. And so he's talking a lot about himself and what he has done as an apostle to kind of confirm his message. Because this is all in the context of a false teaching that had propped up in the churches in Galatia that were basically taking the people of God back as if Jesus' life, death, resurrection had not happened. So essentially what they were doing is they were saying, yeah, it's okay to believe in Jesus, but you have to add things to what he did to really be the people of God. And so these churches with these young Christians, many of whom were not ethnic Jews, but were the surrounding ethnicities, what Paul uses, the catchphrase Gentiles, there was Jews and Gentiles in these churches And what was happening is that the Gentiles were thinking that they had to become Jewish in order to truly assimilate into the people of God. And so um, they were starting to make sure or force people to be circumcised in accordance with the Old Covenant. They were making sure that the, um, the new people in the churches were actually abiding by all of the table fellowship customs that were old in Israel, because that's how they knew how to kind of bring order into chaos, because it was chaotic. New people coming to faith is chaotic and messy, especially back then. It is today too, but back then it was like so different from what Israel was. Israel had been called out out of all of the nations of the world, called out by God to be a holy people. And the rest of the nations were just kind of continuing in their rebellion. And so there was a stark difference in how people saw the world, how people operated, how people had fellowship with each other. And today we're going to be looking at a big question. And it's a question that I think our culture kind of tries to, like, set to the side. I don't know if you're like me, but I live my life question to question, and I've learned that there's efficient questions and inefficient questions. Efficient questions usually start with what, or when, or where, or who, right? Like, what am I going to eat for breakfast? That's efficient. I'll figure that out. I'll eat breakfast. Who am I meeting with? When am I meeting with them? Where am I meeting with them? I'm on my way, out the door, going. Inefficient questions are why and how. 
very inefficient to think about why and how. You don't want to think about them too long because they won't produce anything, right? So our culture, all about production, all about achievement, all about what, where, when, who, but why and how, ah, don't worry about it. And the beauty of Scripture is that it brings back these ancient questions, these massive questions that all people are contemplating. And maybe it's buried under a lot of kind of distraction or a lot of just kind of like habit. But deep down, we all ask these questions. So the question that we're going to look at today that was just kind of on the minds of these ancient people groups who assumed the presence of God, who assumed that they were relating to God somehow. The question is a how question. How do you relate to God? How do you relate to a holy God? How do you relate to a mighty God? How do you relate to a God who is over all the other gods of the nations? How do you relate to this God? So you can turn with me to Galatians 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9 to answer that question. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Please pray with me. Father, we, um, we come before you in the immediacy of, of our world, in the nearness of our world, in the urgency of our world. And we forget that your word says that all flesh is like grass. And when the word comes upon the grass, it shivers, it shrivels. And the flowers fade and the grass withers, but your word, Lord, endures forever. And so, God, I ask that you would interrupt our lives this morning, that you would show us how we are relating to you in our own strength, how we are trying to answer these questions in our own abilities, our own achievements. And, Lord, that as we look upon your Son, we would be overwhelmed by your grace that we would remember what it is to trust you. 
and to come to you this morning as your children. We ask that you would do this by your spirit, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. How do you relate to God? So this little passage answers this question, and it answers it basically by saying you relate to God by trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection alone to be a child of God. You relate to God as a child of God only if you are trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection alone. So we're going to walk through this passage with that as kind of the big answer, and we're going to see why that's true. So the first thing that we're going to look at in verse 1, and even going back to last week a little bit, is the centrality of Jesus' death. Why Jesus' death features so prominently. The second thing that we're going to look at is that the Spirit is proof of your trust. The Spirit and receiving the Spirit is proof of trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection. And then third, we're going to look at the blessing of being a child of God. The blessing of being a child of God. So first, we're going to start where Paul does in this section by centering us on the death of Christ. He's upset. He is really concerned to the point of irritation. He's like a parent who is watching their child not just make a mistake, but do things over and over again that are going to completely destroy their lives. And so this is why he's exclaiming. It's like after finishing the first section and now he's in the second section kind of like giving a defense of his doctrine. He already gave a defense of who he was as an apostle. Now he's getting into his teaching, what he was teaching them. And he's realizing the weight of what it means for these people to start leaving behind the gospel by adding to it, by thinking that they have to do something in order to relate to God as children. And so he's frustrated. And so he says, who has bewitched you? Who has deceived you? Who has made you believe an illusion? Who has taken your focus off of the eternal things and onto the things of this world? The things that you can do. The things that you control. Your behavior. Your obedience. Who has done it? You're bewitched. He says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So in order to trust in Jesus' death and resurrection, you have to understand Jesus' death and resurrection. Why did Jesus have to die? Why? Why did he die on that cross? Why is that so important? So this isn't in the text, but it's central to what Paul is saying by giving, bringing their attention to Jesus on the cross. He's telling them, do you understand what you've seen? The Son of God, crucified, dead, and buried. Do you understand that? Back in verse 21 of chapter 2, He says, I do not nullify the grace of God by trusting in my own abilities. 
For if righteousness were through the law, in other words, if I could make myself righteous, then Christ died for no purpose. Then the Son of God wasted his life. Meaningless. Because you could just accomplish it. He didn't need to die. And so he needed to die for Paul. And he needed to die for a few reasons. We're going to look at three of them. There's more, but three of them are important and central to what we're going to talk about. The first reason that he died is because of sin. Jesus died because of sin. If you understand that God is holy, that he's perfect, that he's righteous, then he cannot allow his children to continue in sin. He would cease to be just. And so Jesus died because of sin. But the problem is that Jesus had no sin of his own. He lived a sinless life. They, his whole life, his whole ministry was under a microscope of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, looking for something because they hated him. He was threatening their power, their authority. He was challenging them because he came from above. His authority was greater than theirs. And so his whole life was lived under a microscope, people trying to find the slightest imperfection, and they could find nothing. At his trial, they asked, why do you accuse this man? And they were like, crucify him. <laughs> Not really an answer to the question. There was no charge that could be brought against him that would stand the test of truth. So he died because of sin, but not his own sin. He died for the sin of his people. He died for the sins of his brothers and sisters who were adopted into the family and the household of God to purify them, to deal once and for all with the sin of his people. In chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. So Jesus' crucifixion had become Paul's crucifixion. And that's the model, that's the pattern for all people who are trusting in Jesus. Is that his crucifixion is your crucifixion. It's the end of your sin. It's the end of the power of your sin. It's the end of the punishment of your sin. It's the end of the reign of your sin. It's the end of sin. Sin and the power of sin is as dead as Jesus was when he was in the grave. Completely dead. So he died because of sin. He also died for the world. He died for the world. The world had become, like in the days of Noah again, corrupt. In the entire story of Scripture, there's a searching for goodness. There's a searching for purity. There's a searching for a good man and a wanting. There's no one. And the corruption of the world becomes apparent. It becomes manifest. And so all of a sudden, there's questions, right, that people would ask, like, has God given up? I thought God was good. This is his creation. Does he not love it? Does he not care? Has he abandoned it? To Satan, has he given it over? Does he not love it? And John 3.16, verse that probably many of you know very well, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his son. He gave his son to die on the cross because God loves the world. He loves the world. And so this public portrayal of Christ crucified on the cross, it's a big sign. It's a big kind of announcement that God has not abandoned this place. He has not abandoned his creation. He hasn't given it over to corruption. There is hope. There is redemption. There is renewal. And so for a world that seems hopeless, for lives that at times seem hopeless, the cross is a sign of God's love. It's a sign of hope. It points to the reality of God's love entering human history, changing the course of human events. It's a sign of God's love for the world. And then third, he died because of sin. He died for the love that God has for the world. And third, he died for you. He died for you. Jesus died on the cross, went into the grave, resurrected from the dead, ascended to be with the Father. And after ascending, he and the Father together pour out the Spirit. And the Spirit comes and falls on the people of God at Pentecost. And the Spirit, what the Spirit is, is the Spirit is God. It's the third person of the Trinity. And with the Spirit comes the accomplishment of Jesus. The Spirit applies the salvation that Jesus accomplished to real people in time. And so this is why this event in, that's recorded in Acts 2 features so prominently for us as God's people, is because the Spirit comes to us just like it came to them. And it comes to us and it wakes us up. It resurrects us, makes us alive to God. And all of a sudden, we individually are awake to God. We hear him. We respond to him. We have been washed. We have been made new. And so Jesus didn't die for sin abstractly. He died for your sins. He died because he wanted to redeem you personally, individually. And when you receive the Spirit, you trust him. And that's how the Spirit is proof of trust. How do you know if you're trusting in Jesus in his death and resurrection alone? Well, you've received the Spirit. Receiving the Spirit means that you trust in the work of Christ. You are all of a sudden aware of your need for a Redeemer. You're a, you are aware that the gap between you and God and the relation that you have with God is completely impossible to traverse 
by anything that you could ever do. And so, at first, it often will feel like despair. Because so much of our lives, again, those little questions, the questions that we can manage, it's like, what can I do for God today? Where am I going to go? All of these things, it's like we can handle, and then all of a sudden, we're hit by the weight of just how meaningless they are when you think of your sin, when you think of the standard. And going back to Jesus dying because of sins, he didn't just die because of the bad things that you do. That's the first thing that we, most people think about. It's like, Jesus died for my mistakes. It's like, okay, sin's a little bit more than that, but it is that, right? It's when you don't meet the standard, when you miss the mark, that is sin. Jesus died for those. But there's also sin Going back to Paul's point at the end of chapter 2, there's also sin in thinking that you can nullify the grace of God by your righteousness. So he didn't just die for the bad things you've done. He died for you trusting in your goodness, in the good things that you've done. And the Spirit wakes you up to that. And so there's a point of despair But in the same breath, you receive the work of Christ. You're reminded that it's his righteousness that makes me righteous. It's his death that satisfies the punishment for my sin. It's his resurrection that promises me eternal life. And so you receive the Spirit. You also are sanctified in the Spirit. And this is kind of his second point. The first point was, did you receive the Spirit? Remember that? Did you do that because you were really good that day? No, it's because you heard the gospel preached and you believed and you received the Spirit. The second thing is, okay, so you begun by the Spirit. You started off on this journey by the Spirit. So does it make any sense to you that you would then switch over to your own works all of a sudden? The very thing that produced failure the very thing that was actually leading you farther away from God, that was causing you to nullify the grace of God? Do you think for a minute that you continue in this walk of faith by your own work? Or is it by the Spirit? The Spirit is the only way to, receiving the Spirit is the only way to trust in Jesus and living by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit is the only way to become more like Jesus. And so this was one of the particular trappings and false teachings that the church in Galatia was starting to believe. Is that they were like, okay, yeah, you were justified by faith, but now we have to sanctify you. We got, you have to like do some stuff. You got to polish yourself up. You can't go on representing God as his child like that. So you, you have to take matters into your own hands. You have to do this. Like, white-knuckle it. And this, to me, is one of the most relatable things of the whole book for us today. I think that we still slip into this constantly. And sanctification is language that maybe if you grew up in a you know, Christian household and are familiar with the church, that you'll probably identify with. But if that's not you, just think of it as self-improvement. Getting better. 
Now, we think that we get better by our own work. We improve ourselves. Even the terminology, self-improvement. It's what we achieve. It's the work you have to do. Think about this. The language of like therapy and recovery. You have to do the work. You have to do the work. You haven't done the work yet. You're not ready to do the work. But you have to do the work. Compare that with what Jesus says. It is finished. The work is finished. Yeah, but I'm still suffering. It's finished. I'm still sinning. It's finished. I still don't feel like I really know who you are. It is finished. The Spirit comes to us and sanctifies us. Oftentimes, friends, at a glacially slow pace. We are so impatient with it. But he does it perfectly in his timing. And his grace is perfectly sufficient for you in his timing. That doesn't mean that you're completely passive. It doesn't mean that you don't do anything. This isn't opposed to effort. It's not opposed to trying to partner and cooperate with God in your sanctification. But what it's saying is that your sanctification is enabled, empowered, and completely fulfilled by the Spirit of God. The difference between that type of sanctification and the type of sanctification that is of the flesh, that is consumed with the things of your own achievement, your own control, your own power, it's like the difference of rowing a kayak up a current that's pushing you back downstream and turning that thing around and paddling with the current. The power of God is willing for your sanctification. But the power of God does not share glory. It doesn't share timing. He is perfect. So trust him. You're sanctified in the Spirit. And as you are sanctified in the Spirit, you grow in trust. And so, again, the Spirit is proof of your trust. It's the proof. And as you are sanctified in the Spirit, you trust in Christ, his death and resurrection. And then finally, Paul brings up miracles. He says, okay, guys, if you aren't convinced yet, answer me this. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do that by works of the law or by hearing with faith? This is a great question because the very essence of a miracle is that it is completely transcends human ability to make it happen. It's like an interruption of the laws of nature. It is supernatural. And so, especially in Acts, you see as the gospel is going out for the very first time, signs and wonders going along with the preaching of the word. And it was the spirit who was going ahead of the church in preparing people to come into the church. 
into the body. And so Paul's question is simple. Did you do that because of your obedience or because the Spirit was with you? It's a reminder to us that all of this is a work of God. It's not done by human achievement. And so if you're trying to relate to God, if you're trying to be a child of God by what you can do, then you can't be a child of God because this is his work. You have to trust it and rest in it. And then finally, we're going to look at the blessing of being a child of God. And this is um, verses, mostly I'm going to be in verses 6 through 9 here. And this is powerful. Especially, it's going to be powerful for us, I trust, but it would have been especially powerful for these early churches. Because he brings up Abraham. He brings up Abraham. Abraham was at the center of this controversy in Galatia. Because Abraham was was commanded by God to circumcise his children as a way of signing to the covenant, of showing off the covenant that God had made. And so this was kind of the justification for making these Gentile believers become Jewish. As they were saying, this is rooted back in Abraham. Like, this is old. This is the story that you belong to now. This is what God's people do. And so Paul goes there, and he says, yeah, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. The righteousness came before the obedience. Abraham first got up and trusted God. And that trust was accounted to him as righteousness. And the sign of the old covenant pointed forward to the fulfillment of that promise. It pointed forward to the child of Abraham who would fulfill the promise that he had received. Abraham was justified by faith, not by his obedience. And then in verse 7, Paul drops a bomb into this church. And he says, Know then that it is those of faith who are children of Abraham. Those of faith who are children of Abraham. That message right there is the only thing, it's the only word that can be spoken over the atrocities that are happening presently in that ancient land in the land that is at the center of the promise that God made to Abraham those of faith are children of Abraham in verse 8 the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So verse 8 is just an unpacking of like, here's how this works. 
Those of faith are children of Abraham because the scriptures, which, okay, first of all, there weren't scriptures. So what, what, what's Paul doing? What happened? Who was communicating with Abraham? God, directly. God's word came to Abraham in Genesis 12. And right here, Paul equates God's word with the scriptures. And what he's doing is he's showing the continuity of this message. This is, this is the same message that he's proclaiming to trust in Christ was proclaimed to Abraham in seed form back in Genesis 12. The scriptures foreseeing that God would do this preached the gospel to Abraham and he believed it and it was counted to him as righteous, righteousness. What was the gospel? What is the description of the gospel? And this is more the impact of the gospel, what the gospel does, what it produces, than it is the gospel itself, but they're the same thing. It brings about this new family. Because that was part of the blessing to Abraham. He said you would get land, you would get inheritance, and through you, all the nations would be blessed. And so Paul picks up on that last part. Through you, all the nations will be blessed. So he says, don't you see, Galatian church, this is the fulfillment. This church, this beautiful body of people, Jew and Gentile brought together in one family, this is the promise that was made to Abraham. This is the reason that God chose Israel to be a holy nation, to produce the one offspring of Abraham who could unite Jew and Gentile into the people of God. That's next week. We're going to talk about that later. This week, we're going to look at how offensive this really is. Because I don't think we really understand what it means to be a child of Abraham. Do you guys know much about Abraham? He's like held up pretty high, right, in scriptures. He's like, oh yeah, Abraham, that's like we're supposed to be like that. Have faith like Abraham. <laughs> Just read, read his life. <laughs> he failed over and over and over again. The promise was to Abraham, and he was married. He got impatient with God in that promise, so he decided to concoct a scheme where he would have a child with another woman, disobeying God, ignoring the promise, that child, Ishmael. Ishmael and Isaac fighting over the blessing. Ishmael feels spurned, feels neglected and animosity between the two people groups that we're still dealing with today. Because Abraham failed. Because he wasn't patient. Because he took matters into his own hands. He said, God, you might not be able to do that. You might not be able to deliver on your promise, but I can. I can make this happen. And it brought catastrophe that we're still, deal still dealing with today. Even at the end of his life, he had concubines. Still was struggling with the same old thing. And it created these people groups and factions that would plague the people of Israel for every single second that they were in the promised land. 
and then he died. Abraham died. And he was laid to rest in the land that was promised to him. But does it really matter where you're buried? One place is as good as the other. You're dead. He was dead in his sin, and he has not come out of the grave. So how is it a blessing to be a child of Abraham? It's a blessing to be a child of Abraham. Because, as next week we'll go into more detail with, Jesus is the offspring that God intended to fulfill that promise. Jesus is the blessing. He's the blessing. He's the answer to the descendants. Because as everyone who calls and trusts on Jesus' name is brought into the family of God, Abraham received descendants. And he is the blessing of the land, the dwelling place with God, the place where God was going to be with his people. And instead, God dwells in us through his spirit. And he's the blessing that through Abraham, all the nations will be blessed because he tears down the walls of division. He tears down the distinction between Jew and Gentile. And he brings in one man, Jesus Christ, those people. And so Jesus is completely and utterly the blessing that the children of Abraham receive. And so it is truly a blessing to be a son and a daughter of Abraham. So what do you do with this? This is maybe a little, feels a little bit distant. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe this is really encouraging to you. I hope it is. But I know for us that we have a huge problem with trust and achievement. Because, like, if there's one thing about this region that I know, it's that trust is dangerous. You don't really want to trust people. And achievement is everything. What you can do is all that matters. And so we have baked into the place that we live narratives that try to rip us away from trusting in Jesus alone. We have work cultures that want you to be so busy with the things of this world, with things that are good, frankly, things that are important oftentimes, things that are powerful by worldly standards, but they want you to be so busy with them that you completely forget to ask the question, who am I to God? We have political cultures. They want to give you a place of belonging, a tribe that's built on what you believe, how you see the world. It's going to identify your enemies for you. It's going to give you a purpose. It's going to give you a works-based righteousness. Here's how to live out this worldview. And depending on how well you do that, you'll raise up the ranks. 
And then most dangerous, there's Christian culture. There's Christian culture. This is the people of God abandoning the gospel, abandoning the knowledge that we are justified by grace through faith, and starting to build into the culture of our relationships, of our worship, of how we see each other, works-based viewpoints. You're as valuable to me as you are useful to the church. There's churches all over this country where people are burning out because that's how they're seen by the church. Or, I will let you in and I will kind of give you time to the extent that I think that you're going to help me achieve my own holiness. Oh, you're going to help me, so I'll pour into you. Looking down on people that are different. Being impatient with one another as we continue to suffer, as we continue to sin. These are all ways that these achievement cultures rip us out of the finished work of Christ. Attempt to distract us with things that we can control, things that we have control of. So what do we do? I've got three things for you. The first thing, and the most important, is goes back right up to verse 1. Look at the cross of Christ. Look at the cross of Christ. That's what Paul says. He was publicly portrayed as crucified for you so that you would not forget this, so that you would remember it. The beautiful hymn says, don't just look, but survey the wondrous cross. Survey it. Take your time. Meditate on it. Fill yourself with it. Slow down. Let some of your achievements become meaningless to you because you are so filled with the wonder of that cross where the Prince of Glory died for you. Survey the cross. When you survey the cross, these next two things just kind of happen. So it's not like, you know, it's a list of things that will happen, but you can't reverse engineer it. You can't like do the things first and then, oh, I understand the cross now. No, when you understand the cross, you will also, like Abraham, lay down your life and follow Jesus because you'll fully trust him. I can follow Jesus anywhere because I see him on the cross. I see how trustworthy he is. And then finally, proclaim the gospel through the scriptures. Right? Today, Jesus is publicly portrayed as crucified in the proclamation of the gospel. So friends, you know it, proclaim it. Share it. Go to battle with a culture that has so individualized and relativized truth that it makes Jesus optional. Proclaim the gospel. Show him 
to your neighbors as crucified for them. And that happens naturally as you survey the cross, as you're filled with wonder at its beauty, at the love that God has for you as he sent his son to die on that cross, to enter the ground in death, and to resurrect and pour out his spirit to you. Please pray with me. Father, it is um, overwhelming, especially in just a short morning, to be confronted with how extravagantly you have loved us, how much you have given us in your spirit. And so, Lord, I ask that you would help us persevere, (laughs) that we would allow this to sink and soak in, and that we would spend the rest of our lives desiring more, to understand more and more just how much you have given us in your Son. Lord, I ask that you would help us to trust, that we would grow in trust, that we would be patient as you work out the salvation that Christ has accomplished for us in our lives. Lord, I ask that you would give us love for each other as we help each other with that, and that you would give us love, your love for this world as we proclaim the gospel, as we share the gospel with people who you are wanting and desiring to trust you and your son. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.